for me as a storyteller, dealing with true stories, whether people are alive or dead, that is such a sacred trust. The fact is, I'm putting dialogue in the mouths of people that they never said, but it also has to tell the truth. That's such a sacred trust. That's why I write with uh, great humility and nonstop prayer, and I do about 800 drafts. This is the Act One Podcast. Our guest today is screenwriter Todd Komornicki. I'm your host, James Duke. I spoke with Todd over Zoom back in May while I was flattening the curve in Los Angeles and he was sheltering in place in New York City. Todd, thanks for joining, man. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Is this uh, audio only or video also for the poor souls at home? Yeah, I, I am uh, saving everyone from from seeing my mug. Not from yours, but from my mug. So it's audio oh, only. So. Oh, so my, my face is, is going out live, but not yours. Yours is a draw. Yeah, yours is a draw. I'm going to do a screen grab of you right now and send it out. <laughs> I'm going to do the whole interview pause like this. I'm just going to move my lips. It'd be like an animated, you know, low fi animation. Like when they make a dog talk on those right, YouTube right. You, you can just get, you can put anything in my mouth and people will believe. You're Did like you a- what Homer Nikki said to James? That is shocking. You're that, like a, you're like your own meme. You're creating your own meme. I've never been uh, very memorable. Um, you, you've been locked up in uh, New York City. Is it any different than being normally locked up in New York City? <laughs> yeah, of, of course. The one fundamental difference is my complete, utter lack of knowledge of all things has been laid bare in front of my children. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, homeschooling. This, this stuff you hear about homeschooling, if you are not homeschooling, because homeschoolers just nod, but anybody who is pre-child or post-child and their, their kids have moved on, uh, it's the most humbling, stressful, awful. I mean, my beloved wife and seven-year-old son, I have a 10-year-old daughter too. We've avoided some landmines there. But the things these two have said to each other would make Scorsese blush. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, it's true. I've got a 10-year-old and an eight-year-old. So you know. Oh man, it's a different, it's a it's a different beast entirely from any memory that I had as a kid. It's, it's just completely different. And my kids are, my kids are, my kids are actually doing really well, but I think it's in spite of me, not because of me, you know, like, well, let's, give you, let's give yourself a little credit. I mean, you, you're, <laughs> you're doing a podcast wearing earplugs right now. You have no idea what's going on, but I can see behind you. <laughs> children are spray painting the bedroom wall. Um, and and with, with the misspellings, <laughs> clearly, you have not been on the ball. Yeah, no, we haven't done spelling clash yet. My um, the, the homeschooling part, yeah. The kids are they're they're uh, soaring because having one-on-one teaching is a big help, or at least having mom or dad accessible is a great help. But the the humbling part, the humiliating part, is especially for my ten-year-old looking at me and say, "How could you not know that?" I mean, you're, you're a grown-up. You can't. You don't know what a rhombus is. I'm supposed to know. I said, sweetheart, a day uh, in your late teens, they tip you over while you're sleeping, and all that knowledge falls out of one ear. 
That's right. And um, I know that's not a comfort to you now because you have a quiz in 10 minutes <laughs> online with all your other fellow students who are crushing it because <laughs> their parents are robots or something. <laughs> Sorry, dear. Well, you know, you always have the arts. <laughs> that's right. You always have the arts. That's right. Oh, man, that's so funny. I don't know if... Um, I don't know if we'll be able to send our kids back to school on, uh, in August, but I, I, I do hope for their sake. <laughs> I, I do hope for their sake we are able to. Teachers uh, deserve Major League Baseball or money. That's, that, that's what they deserve. They deserve like seven-year contracts for $80 million because they're raising our kids. And they also – they're grown-ups and they have kids and they're able to maintain all that information in their heads. They can talk to you about the civil rights movement and in the next breath, talk to you about global expansionism. And then the next breath, they can talk to you about the dreaded rhombus. Yeah. Who, who amongst the listeners can tell me that a rhombus is also a square? If a rhombus is a square, why don't you just call it a square? Why does it need a separate name that sounds like it will defeat you on a human level? Rhombus. You, you, you know we're going to have some geometry nerd. like. Uh, Please, uh, have him call me. You can, <laughs> you can move in during quarantine. I won't even test you. I won't even, I won't even wear a hat, my hazmat suit. Please, help us. The thing about these teachers is, too, they're not just teaching your kid. They're teaching your kid and 20 other kids. There, there's, a, there's a special place in heaven for teachers because I have to put up with my kids. They have to put up with my kids and 20 other strangers' kids. Absolutely. And see those children for who they are, nurture them at their speed, do it within the context of all these other kids. No, it's holy work. Yeah. Who wants to do that? <laughs> who wants to nurture kids? But see, what, what's interesting is that, like everything in our society, the people that do things we don't understand are treated as if they're inconsequential or in the way or lesser than. Non-essential. Yep. And, and the irony is, we talk, we're here to talk about movies. That's how screenwriters are treated. Treat, yep. Can't even speak anymore. Yep. That's how screenwriters are treated Directors are not treated that way, but studios and producers tend to treat writers who do something that no, none of them know how to do as, uh, you know, we might squeeze a deal in for you. We might, you know, help you with your union. We might, but, um, you know, we're going to fire you at will and we're going to rewrite you constantly and we're going to take your voice away. Now, the, the payback is, is now in television because peak TV has allowed writer to be king. And all those shows are run by writers, and it's fantastic. The theater has always been writer-centric. Of course, novels are writer-centric. But for some reason, in the DNA of, of the movies, the writer has been treated as an addendum what? and what? taken advantage of and taken for granted. Why do, you think that, why do you think that is? Why is it such a big deal to not have an actor on set? I mean, not have an actor, not have a writer on your set. What, what, where do you think that comes from? Because writers do something that other people don't understand. That, that's why. It's frustrating. It's like, hey, who's the annoying guy who's the only one who speaks French? Like, don't have him at the party 
because he's going to be talking French all the time and we don't understand French and we don't need that. And there's a fear around it. And I'll, I'll give you an example of a story. I won't tell the movie, but I was on set of a, of a movie. It's not Elf, but I was on set of a movie <laughs> and I was producing this movie and I had been involved in everything for years, you know, five years. And now we're on set. And while we were working on the movie, I was hired to do a rewrite, a production rewrite while we were shooting. And that very first morning, we're having coffee together, myself and the, and the other producers and the director. And then they say to me, hey, give us a minute. And the director and, and the two other producers, including my producing partner, walk over about 15 feet away and have a confab. And I drift over, I'm like, what's, what's going on? Is it like a joke? Is it April 1st? And I didn't notice. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're the writer now. So we, we have to gather our thoughts and our defenses so we can have a conversation with the writer, but we can't let you in on it because, you know, you might funk it up. And that was F-U-N-K, I just said. So, you, so even, even, though you're the, even though you're one of the producers, now we must treat you like a writer. Yeah, I wish I were making that up, but that's a perfect metaphor for how screenwriters are treated on the feature side. Wow. And you should see the, you know, we're in labor talks now for a new contract with the studios, and you should see how different the writing is. Like, here, here, um, here are our goals as we fight for our constituents. In TV, we will fight for this, 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 and this. It's all from power. In, in movies, we will fight for this incremental, you know, ability to let you tiptoe on one foot when no one else is around and have one M&M. And we're really hoping to get that. Um, you can have an M&M and you may have to crawl. But, see, I, write, I know these things because I, I get, I'm blessed enough to be producing stuff and developing stuff and also working both in, in television and features. So I see the differences yeah. and the, like, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll leave. You said you like anecdotes and, and this, this is a perfect example. I'm going to, out of respect to the living, I'm going to leave these two individuals names out of the story, but this is a true story. So a, one of my buddies is an A-list, you know, like triple A-list screenwriter who rewrites everything you see and is in the you know top five working screenwriters. And he does a, uh, an act of service from his heart. When he gets hired to do a rewrite, he calls the last writer mm -hmm. and he just says, Hey, great job. I'm, I'm polishing your gold. And just want to tell you that, you know, I'm want to honor your work. And I think you did an amazing job. It's this habit of respect that he pays. So on this particular job, it was a huge studio movie, and the guy that he was replacing was actually on the ladder of amazing above him and was also a friend. So he calls this quadruple A-list writer and starts just saying, listen, it's so funny. It's so fast. It's what a cool piece of work. This movie's going to be giant. Uh, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to get any credit. I'm going to come in and I'll, you know, I'm going to write some jokes and make you, make you look a splash better. Thank you for your work. And the phone is totally quiet on the other end for a long time. And the quadruple A-list writer says, those mother. 
they they hadn't told him. He, oh. he found out he was fired by his buddy calling to say, "I'm rewriting you," oh, and he man. had he had been on that movie for two and a half years. He'd written 28 drafts for the oh, studio. Wow. wow. And he was that top of the mark, and that's how they treated him. That's the screenwriting gig. So it's good that TV has addressed that, but it's, it's so silly. We, we need to be in awe of the people that do things we don't know how to do. Look, I'm in awe of the plumber, the, the elevator repair guy, the, the guy who can fix a car, the people who build bridges, the, the ER nurses in this pandemic. I'm in awe, and I love being in awe of people that do stuff I don't know how to do and celebrating them. So much of, of how we treat people comes from our insecurity and our fear. And that, that's across the human experience. So if we spend less time being afraid in general and less time being afraid of expertise, see, we, we also live in an era yep. where the trolls are winning Yep. And it's the death of expertise so that you can open a brilliant restaurant, but if four people who have never had filet mignon before are served filet mignon and say, this is not a McDonald's quarter pounder, and therefore it's terrible, that restaurant closes. Not based on how good it was for the world or the excellent of the, it's not a meritocracy, based on the noise of the person who didn't know what they were talking about. And we yeah. currently live in that world. I, I call it the tyranny of the mediocre. It's uh, I think we the, can go. I think we can go below mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. We 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 find ourselves trying to. Um, it's a fight to the lowest common denominator. So the, but yeah, I, you know, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your process of deciding to work on a project. Um, you, you know, you're at, you're at the point right now where, you know, you don't, you don't have to, you know, take any, anybody's, you know, job. And so you can be a little bit more selective for you, Todd, where, what makes you get excited about a project? What makes you other than the, the zeros that they, at the end of your, um, <laughs> that's, a what, bad, that's a bad motivation. Exactly. So what, what is it what, for you? What, what, what gets you excited about a project and what makes you want to uh, do it? I've been blessed with getting so many true stories put across my transom. And yeah, you, you have to feel that you see the movie because there are many, many cool stories and it's impossible to work on all of them. That's why we produce and develop it at Guy Walks Into a Bar because there's a lot of projects I want to move forward and be part of, but that I don't have time to write. In fact, we just developed and the script just came in. Somebody brought me an amazing story that I would have loved to have been the writer on, but I was was not. Some other writer brought it to us and he, he did a brilliant job. And it's the true story of Jerry McCauley, who no one knows and everybody will. We do our job making this movie right. He was a degenerate, violent river thief in the mid-1800s, an Irish immigrant, a violent, brutal, nasty son of a gun who went to Sing Sing, not for a crime he committed. He was framed. He was so hated that he was framed for something he didn't do, but he should have gone to prison anyway. He's such a bad guy. And he met Jesus in prison. And he came out 
and wound up founding the very first homeless shelter in the history of the world. Really? Wow. Yes. New York City Rescue Mission. It was called the, the Water Street Mission, but now it's called New York City Rescue Mission. It's still here in New York. It was the first one. Wow. And so there's a story about a guy who is doing everything to either end your life or his own. And God says, I know what I'm going to do. That's my guy. That's my guy to heal the broken and the forgotten because he, he gets it. He, he knows. So that was a story. If I had been pitched that as a story to write, I'd be like, yes, I was pitched it as a story to, to help develop. And what an honor to walk alongside the writer, Eric Cheney, as, as we got the shape telling this man's story. And now, now the script is done and it's terrific. We're going to put the movie together. Um, so that, but I'm not writing that one, but the, the yes always comes from, wow, I need to tell that story. Currently, I'm, I'm, one of the next movies I'm going to write is Thirst, which is based on Scott Harrison's book. Have you read Scott Harrison's book? No, but I know, but I know Scott. I've met him. Great book. And that's a, another story similar to the Jerry McCauley story. Yeah. The debauched club promoter, drunk, rabble rouser, hiding a lot of pain from his own childhood, loses everything, goes hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And God says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to have you be the one that brings fresh water to 18 million people who have never had clean water in their lives. We're going to save a couple million lives together. You, the guy that's curled up on the floor in the middle of his empty apartment with the cocaine on the, on the glass table. I, I, I want you. So that kind of thing. The, the stories of, they're manger stories. You know, where are you going to have the king of the world, the savior of the world born? You could put him anywhere at any time. Nope. The fullness of time. So during the census, with no room in the inn, totally forgotten, no protections, just the donkeys to, to pay witness. That's, that's what he does. So stories that refle reflect the gospel story and the expect the unexpected part of God's imagination, that really, those really grabbed me. And I find, you know, it's funny you said about, about money, because obviously I have to raise my family and, and, uh, and, and pay bills like anybody else. I have found that when I've been attracted to something, even if the story is really powerful and I want to do the story, if I'm attracted to it and I keep thinking about the money, it's almost always a bad sign. Like if really? my mind is leaning towards that, yeah, it's great, but it's also this, yeah. it, it's usually something to not be part of. Interesting. And I was, this, this, this runs deep because this is a long story. So maybe I can tell it later, but if we hearken back to it, there, there's a movie I wrote called Heart, which is the true story of the only professional athlete to ever play with a transplanted heart. But when that story came in, it was undeniable that I had to drop everything and do it. And I had no time and it was not good money and it was completely inconvenient and everything about it said no, except I absolutely had to do it. So I went to my wife, I said, Jane, this is, a terrible move to do this. Drop everything. People are waiting. I'll have to, you'll see me less. This is going to be a absolute crunch of another, you know, of the next four or five, six months. And she, and she looked at me when she heard everything. She said, you have to do that. 
just have to. So it's listening to the voice within and a lot of prayer. That's good. When you got connected to on Sully, that was not you first, right? They brought it to you. What was the process? No, for it Sully? was. Just, I, I wish they brought it to me. It was an open writing assignment, the dreaded OWA. Wow, which, I didn't know that. Okay, which, which is shorthand for you're never going to get that job. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty much to everybody, you know, they, they they list these OWAs, and agents put people up for stuff. But you know what happened was John Berg was my producing partner on Elf and we remained great friends. He was at Warner Brothers at the time. And when the story happened, not even the, when it happened, his book came out, Sully's book came out and it had been optioned by Frank Marshall and Alan Stewart, the producers. And he sent me an email say, saying, this is a you, Todd, this is a you story. And I said, this is great. I got the inside track, man. My buddy at Warner Brothers is sending me and I'm like, great. I'm like, this is this a Warner movie? And he wrote back, ha ha, um, you know, we make Justice League. This is not, this is not a Warner movie. The, um, the delicious irony is that when Clint Eastwood came on board, guess what studio made that movie? Yep, exactly. Yep. Warner Brothers. Delicious. Yep. But so John just told me about it. I reached out to my agent and said, I'd like to go up for this job. He got me in to do a pitch over the phone. But the only thing that was singular about my attempt for this is I was first. I, I happened to be the first person to raise my hand and I was the first person to pitch. The pitch went really well. And then for five months, I never heard a word. Um, the, the silence was almost as if I'd never pitched it. I, I, I thought I was going crazy because it went so well. I was really ready, man. I, re, I, I pitched the movie that we made, really. I mean, with some minor changes, but wow. I, pitched, I pitched the movie that, that we wound up making. Is that typical? Is that typical to, to have silence for that long or is that unusual? I, neither. I mean, it, it, <laughs> but, but usually, usually silence means thanks, but no thanks. Right, right, right. But it, it had gone so well that when I would ask my agent to check in or whatever and find out that there had been no response, that's when you start to feel like you've gone a little crazy. And then after five months, thank God, they, they called up and they said, we heard you first and we like, we like what we heard first best. But that was, um, you know, they talked to everybody, as, as, I, as I said in the right. interview before, they talked to everybody with an opposable thumb. Yeah. There was a, was a long list. So clearly God was holding that one for me. When did, when did Eastwood get involved? Five years after I wrote the script. When I turned in the second draft, Flight came out. The, uh, Zach, and, the Bob Zemeckis movie with Denzel Washington, right? Yeah. Exactly. So there you had, it was not a true story, but it was a movie star movie about a plane crash and an investigation, and it was high profile. So Frank and Alan really took our script underground and, and waited. And it was five years before they peeked their head out and started trying to put the movie together. And, and um, Alan knew Clint, and it was great. She had a script that she'd sent to Clint, and she kept calling him about it. And finally, his, uh, his doorkeeper said, Alan, move on. We're not, we're not doing that one. Send something else. And she had this light bulb moment of, oh, I've had this script for all these years. I've never Sully. And then, boom, we, were, we went from, no pun intended, dead in the water 
completely missing off radar for five years uh, into pre-production. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. The, what was, so, you know, obviously Eastwood is one of the, the biggest legends of our, of our, of our business. Uh, talk a little bit about that experience. What is it like to write a screenplay for, for Clint Eastwood to direct? Well, he doesn't want to change anything is the best part. The only, the only rewriting I had to do was because of rights issues. When I wrote the script, I didn't have permission to use actual passengers. And then, you know, for the story on the, on the plane, I could write about Sully and everybody else, but the passengers on the plane, and I, I don't know if you've seen the film, but they're oh, yeah. I like yeah. um, a mother with a, a baby and a family going on a golf vacation. There's, you know, a mother and a daughter. So they were able to figure out a way through public domain if there was a story that had been reported in the news that I could use those snippets. And Clint is all about authenticity. So he just said to me, Todd, pick five or seven of the stories from the, that are from the news that are your favorites. Send those to me and I'll tell you which ones I want to do. He chose the ones that are in the movie. And then I wrote those scenes around those characters. And, you know, wow. had the closed loop of those characters landing and being, right. you know, upset or calling home, whatever they did. The rest of the script was untouched. And, and then once I wrote that, that was untouched. He just shot the script word for word. Wow. That's, is it, is it, uh, <clears throat> did, does he allow you on set? <laughs> Were yeah, you able to yeah, get? <laughs> absolutely. He was, he was the nicest man. He and Tom Hanks, you, you have your dream. Even you go back to, you revert to sort of your childhood and you think about what it would be like to meet your heroes or favorite athlete. And usually it's the person that signs your towel and throws it in your face and never looks at you. That's, that's sort of the way that experience usually goes. But instead with these guys, it was, you know, whatever my highest hope for meeting them was tripled. They were absolute gentlemen and we, um, we remain in touch. I'm doing something else with Tom coming up and, uh, and Clinton and I did something else that didn't come to fruition, but we did another project together after Sully. So it's been really, really a blessing. I, I, I did see uh, the film and really, and really enjoyed it, you know, years ago when it came out. I, I, one of the things I enjoyed, and you and I talked about this uh, a couple of years ago, uh, is your, your decision to, the way you structured the film is different. So for those who who don't know, you chose to kind of play with time a little bit, the way you structured it. Talk a little bit uh, about that process, like why you decided to do that. What, what was the thought behind that? Because I, I, I thought it, it worked quite well. Thank you, James. There's a, a storytelling theory that I've used. It's, the first time I used it was in a, a novel I wrote in my 20s, a book called Famine. That's where I discovered it. Um, I hate flashbacks and I hate movies that have flashbacks because my experience of a flashback and I think everyone's is is that oh they couldn't figure out how to do this part of the story so they just now they're telling me and wink wink please forgive us but this is why Johnny runs backwards and you know his he's part flamingo you know his knees bend backwards and here's the moment when his his father met the flamingo <laughs> in, on a business trip to Miami but it has nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but now you know he escaped the killer by running backwards. Thank goodness, now we know that. So that's a flashback, which I hate. But I'm fascinated by 
point of view stories and point of view storytelling. And in a movie like Sully, which is through his lens, it's not, that story's told specifically and always had been through his personal experience. You can use this thing that I like to call the eternal now. So the eternal now is that everything that has happened to you, James, and to me, and to the listeners whenever they're hearing this, everything that's ever happened to us, we have brought into this moment. Uh, most of it we can't access or remember, but all of it is living within us. So that how I react to what's on your t-shirt, how I feel about earbuds, how I feel about ceiling fans, which is behind you, um, the light coming in. My whole life experience is shaping how I experience this present moment. And then how we deal in this present moment impacts our future. So the past, present, and future are always residing on this pinpoint every moment of our lives. And as a storytelling technique, what that allows us to do is the character can be talking in the present. And if we push in towards his eye or just drift past his shoulder, we can go anywhere in his memory slipstream. We can go to when he was seven. We can go to when he's afraid of being 100, as long as we come back to the place we started. That keeps everything connected to this, this feeling of eternal now. And what that does for an audience is instead of it being a flashback, even though it could be from the past, where you feel a distance between you and the character, now you've grown more intimate with the character because you had his memory with him. Oh, wow, that did happen. And so that's living in him. And that's how he feels about flying. And that's why he's meticulous. So over the course of a movie, you grow closer and closer and closer to that main character. And your empathy grows and your understanding and actually your experience of the movie changes from outside in to inside out. So that I think creates a kind of experience of, of uh, storytelling that's unique and effective and makes movies stick around. Let's, let's nerd out on this a little bit. Your actual, pro because this is fascinating. Your actual process for this, are you creating kind of, you know, character analysis and character kind of profiles linearly, or are you sitting down and looking at a character and you're just creating moments throughout time? Like what's the actual process of finding these memories and moments for your characters? Well, this works best with, I've done it in fiction, but it works best in nonfiction. Uh, also because people's memories are so scattered, you know, we could, we could be having this conversation and there could be a knock on the door and you could have this memory out of nowhere, like, oh my goodness, I remember my mom pounding on my door in the middle right. of homework. And now, you know, and this is going to get interrupted. You could go on a whole right. invisible anxiety run that we yeah. would never know, but that <laughs> you, you would feel it in your skin, the real thing. So I'm starting usually with a book by a real life person or about a real life person. So you have this breadth of experience to be pulling from. It's a great palette, many different colors. Then if the person is alive, I spend maximum time that they will allow with that person and memorize them, how they move, how they think. And I always do a deeper dive. And what I find is that it's the stuff that's under the rocks. It's not, oh, there's a rock in my garden and I'll write about that rock. It's what's underneath that rock or how far I can throw that rock or his best friend, Rocky. Like you'd be amazed the little tidbits that point to something. Yeah. And I'll give an example. This, this is not what it says in Sully's book, but if Sully said in his book, and on Thursdays, I always played Parcheesi with my sister. 
but then never talked about his sister or Parcheesi again in the book, you know, just a throwaway line. When I was with Sully, I would say, what about this Parcheesi with your sister? And inevitably what you get is, you know, a several minute story that maybe has never been spoken out loud, that is not in any of the literature, but informs so much. And that one question can be nine pages of the screenplay. Wow, that's and cool. you wind up giving people their life back in a unique way. We're gonna talk a little bit later about It's a Wonderful Life. And I wrote a movie called The Greatest Gift, which is the true story of how It's a Wonderful Life became It's a Wonderful Life. But in meeting Marguerite, the daughter of Philip Van Doren Stern, who came up with the idea for It's a Wonderful Life. We spent several days together. She was in her late seventies. And at the end, when I just shared back what I'd heard, that's all, all I did was share back and do a little stitching, but it was all there, it was all from her. And she said, I feel like you're giving my family back to me. You're like, I, I, am, wow. seeing things, I am seeing things I've never seen. And I said, well, when we speak things, they come into being, they, they enter the world and you've been carrying this around with you. And now you've just offered this up to the story that we can tell and we can tell it together. So talking wow. to people and you know, this James, all of us in the end, we just want to be seen. We just want to be heard. That's all. We don't need a movie made about us. We just want to be understood. And when you're talking to someone who's lived an extraordinary event, even though Sully is a hero and all these things, he just wants to be seen and heard for the man he is. Everything that mattered to him was just the integrity of, of how to keep an airplane safe, how to do best practices. We kept going back and back and back to that. And one of the great moments for me in the whole experience was he left the screening of the finished movie course he'd read the script many times he and i worked very closely during that period of time but when he left the screening of the movie on warner brothers lot he said to a pr person who was there who told me he said you got the aviation and my marriage right and that was such a deep thrill because those are the two most important things of the man right there yeah and it was later when he went and saw the movie again in a couple of weeks that he came out and he reached out to me and he said, Hey, the movie's pretty good too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you're, you're, you're looking at your own life. You can't take in what a stranger would see. He's just like, did you get what matters to me? Right. And for me as a storyteller dealing with true stories, whether people are alive or dead, that is such a sacred trust. The fact is I'm putting dialogue in the mouths of people some of whom are alive, that they never said. Now, with the cockpit voice recorder, obviously that's what he said, but he doesn't remember word for word what he said in this moment or that moment. He remembers the feeling behind it, but I have to write it, and I have to write it in movie dialogue so it's not too technical or autocratic or a movie star doesn't want to play the role, but it also has to tell the truth and it has to feel good to them saying those words. That's such a sacred trust. That's why I write with uh, great humility and nonstop prayer. And I do about 800 drafts. Wow. I love that. I think one of the most loving things we can do to another human being is ask them a question. We, we... Well, you're loving me up big time, James. 
That's right. That's right. But I just, I find that when you actually care enough to actually ask someone a question and like genuinely want to know the answer to it, not just, Hey, how's your day going? There's something about that. Someone you feel heard, right? Someone all of a sudden wants to know about me, you know? And okay, it, it James, so let's, let's, do, let's do that. Let's talk right now. Um, there's no screen grab for this, but I'm going to ask James. James, <laughs> why do you shave? I shave because my wife tells me to shave. Not because uh, society tells me to shave. <laughs> And why does your wife tell you? Or Bick. Or Bick. Did society tell your wife that her husband should shave? Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. Um, Operators are standing by. We're going to be taking callers (laughs) on both sides of this hairy issue right after this commercial. (laughs) You did that just so that I would play that opening piece of the conversation. I hope you play everything. Um, For those of you listening, you may not know, but James and I did this a few (laughs) years ago, and it was spectacular. But no one has ever heard it because you forgot to push record. You were supposed to be, I think I was supposed to start this podcast like two years ago and you were going to be like the first guest. And uh, yeah, look how it aged me. Look how it (laughs) aged me. I've been waiting for years on this desert island. The refrigerator (laughs) is empty. All I have left is pomegranate juice. You must clearly, and maybe I'm wrong, but you must clearly love research. I mean, you're such a true story guy. Is that, is research your jam? Like you just love learning about these people and these stories? The irony is that I was such a lazy student and I never had discipline in anything. Even in the sports I played, I was, I was lazy. And if I had a facility for something, I would, I would do that thing, but I wouldn't put any extra effort into it. And then I became a writer and for some reason that lit me up. And yeah, you can't, you can't stop me. I can't get enough. All, we currently have 50 projects in development a guy walks into a bar about 12 of them i'm writing and i would say about 44 of them are research heavy and jonathan and seth who work with me my colleagues every time a new project it comes in they're like we got to read five five books right i'm like <laughs> five they read 15 books just five let's, yeah. <laughs> let's dig in man this is good you're getting smarter by the day what what is it about uh, all that research you feel like makes a difference in your writing, makes a difference in your, in your films. It's those tidbits. It's what I was talking about with yeah. the Parcheesi and the sister. Yeah. It's the stuff that's hidden. And most people that are telling their own story, they, they don't either give themselves the opportunity or know that there are these little tributary opportunities that are uh, extraordinary and, and holding gold. And they're also writing for a market. Usually they're being paid to write a book or, or someone's helping them write it. And it's about the story and whatever happened in their regular life that highlights that story or reflects that story will be chosen and other things get edited out. I'm interested in all the stuff that gets edited out. I'm interested in all the secrets and all the, the um, things that we're shy about because really the things that we hold closest, the cards that we hold closest to our chest, those are our best cards. And people are waiting, you know, got that expression, ace in the hole. And pe- people are hanging on for dear life to their, their purest magic. And 
they're hoping twofold. One, that they'll never be asked to have to play it. But two, that if they are asked, that they've got one to play. And if they get asked about it, they can they often deny. What are you talking about? My hands aren't holding anything. There's nothing here. And if I've built a relationship up with someone, I can I can get them to talk about at least the fact, even if they won't show me the card, at least the fact that they are holding a card. And that alone tells something about how to write a scene. Yeah. This is the guy who is holding his cards. He has something in reserve. That and that works perfectly with with Sully because he's getting berated and pigeonholed and told that he's wrong again and again so much that he begins to doubt himself, but he has an ace in the hole, man. It's ace in the hole is the human factor. That's why Clint fell in love with the script because it's about human beings over technology because technology has no loyalty. I, I, I wrote that in a play in 1992 or something. And I think it's the truest line I've ever written in my life. Technology has no loyalty. It's there for you. It's on your side until you need it and it's not working. You can't convince it of anything. It's, it's just a code. It's not personal. And the computer was saying that Sully made the wrong decision. The simulations were saying he made the wrong decision. And the only reason that he won that argument is because he remembered. I am a human being who did this as a human being. We were rescued by human beings. Let's talk about it from that angle. And that created the 35 second delay in the, in the new Sims that showed he was right. If he had not had that card to play, he would have been blamed. So it's important to know what cards you're holding. That's fantastic. So the movie that I'm sure a lot of people want to hear about is one of my kids' favorite film. In 2003, you somehow pulled off uh, something that is rare, which is you created a film that now people watch every single Christmas. And um, I don't, I don't, I, I, it's, that's like, uh, got to be the gift that keeps on giving. How, how in the world did you get connected to Elf? Well, my producing partner and I, we had a, a small management division at that time. And one of the writers we were managing was David Berenbaum, who wrote the script of Elf. And so we were there from, from the very beginning and we got to develop it with him and shape it with him. And it's, it was a beautiful script. David is, is such a gem. I love him. And then we were thinking, you know, what do we, what do, we do with this? We've got to put the movie together. Who do we want? And it was a no-brainer between John and I that it had to be Will Ferrell. And the interesting thing was Will was ice cold as a movie actor because all that had happened for him was Night at the Roxbury. He was a big star from SNL, but he had done Night at the Roxbury a couple of years ago and was just, nobody That's was right. hiring him. Yeah, that was before old school and all that stuff, yeah, right? It was, yeah. It was, yeah, exactly. So probably two years before the movie was made, we got Will attached. And then we took it to the town and everybody in Hollywood passed. And David, the writer, had a deal at the time with Disney. So they got three cracks at it because of his contract. And they passed three times. And wow. the wow. answer from every studio was the same. Will Ferrell is not a movie star <laughs> and, and no one wants to go see a Christmas movie. Really? Wow. 
So that's how we wound up at New Line. And New Line was not owned by Warner Brothers at the time. New Line was an independent studio run by yep. Bob Shea and Michael Lynn. Yep. And they had made almost exclusively horror movies. That's where they made all their money. Yep. Uh, you know, Freddy, Krueger, yep. and that was, that, that was their, but they never made a movie anything like this. They'd made some sort of edgy comedies like Drop Dead Fred and- No, they made Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when I was a kid. There, there you go. go. <laughs> well, that's, that's not too edgy. <laughs> but they, they, they'd certainly not, not done anything in this space. And we essentially went to them a little bit begging. You know, they, they offered very little money to option the script. They had two executives there that were young, Kent Alterman, who has been running Comedy Central now for the last decade, and Kale Boyder, who has gone on to produce a ton of movies and is a, a big deal at Legendary and a wonderful, wonderful guy, both wonderful guys. They were huge Will Ferrell fans. So they convinced the New Line bosses to take a flyer, pay a nickel for this movie and see what we could come up with. So we developed the script over time. Adam McKay came in and did some rewriting. He uh, was not doing the, the big short yet. He hadn't become a, a, a hoity-toity Oscar winning director yet, but he was longtime comedic partners with Will Ferrell. Yeah. So he did some work and some other, uh, we, got, we hired John Favreau who had only made one movie before, which was a little mob comedy called Made, yep. with Puffy Combs and Favreau started it with Vince Vaughn. But that was a little movie for $5 million and was profanity laden and very contained, not an arrow pointing towards Elf at all. But Favreau and his career has proved it. Favreau is special. And he came in and we met with a lot of directors and. For John and I, he was our only choice. There was, yeah. um, you know, some back and forth as to whether he was the right guy at that time. But he came in and he had a one-year-old son at the time. And he said, I want to make a movie like those old Rankin-Bass movies, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Santa Claus Coming to Town. I want to make a movie like that that my son can watch for the rest of his life. And that's exactly what, what he did. And we, yeah. we fought for his vision and the sweetness and the purity and the tenderness and a character who was Teflon not to get away with stuff, but Teflon as light and a story about how light wins. And I think the reason that the movie has endured is because it's very unique in our culture to have a movie that's not based on humiliation. Almost all our comedy, even our sitcoms, and I love Everybody Loves Raymond, and, but you go all the way back to The Honeymooners, Almost everything is a comedy of anxiety and humiliation. The, the main character is thrown into a situation in which they're wrung out to dry and somehow against all odds, they squeeze through for another episode. And we, we laugh and then we squirm. And that seems to be the decision that that's where comedy lies. I think comedy lies in, in great storytelling and um, hilarious moments and people being true to who they are no matter what. And that's what we had in, in the character of Buddy the Elf. And that's what David Barenbaum got right from the start and that we always hung on to. People love that movie because love wins. Light wins. People tear up. People cry when James Caan sings Santa Claus is Coming to Town. He's not singing Ave Maria. <laughs> He's not singing Amazing Grace. Right. But it's this little act. Yep of faith and love and goodness yeah. and it works and, and Buddy the Elf waves and it's like, you know, it's like 
it is the most light filled yeah. and, and humiliation free movie out there. And I think that's yeah. really why it stuck around. It is. It's, and the whole time you're watching the film, at least for me, you know, cause I've watched it before kids and now I've watched it with kids, you know, and you know, before kids, I'm watching it and I'm enjoying it just for the comedy, you know, Hey, that's funny. Right. Uh, that, that's, I mean, I love Christmas movies and I, you get that, but really it's, uh, you know, I think the first viewing or so is for the comedy. But now that I watch it with my kids, what you're seeing is you're seeing this little kid, Buddy is a little kid who's actually making a difference in these people's lives. Because like you said, he, it's the classic fish out of water story that he doesn't change. Like he, he, he is who he is. He's true to himself. He never changes in that sense. And by doing that, he changes the people around him. And that, as an adult, watching it now with my kids, it kind of is that, the, the, that extra layer that I think people like to go back and watch, at least for us, go back and watch it uh, year in and year out, is that reminder that, that um, love can win out, that you can actually be true to yourself, and it can actually make a difference in other people's lives. Well, thank you. That was beautifully said. Is that too meta? Is that too meta? No, no. It uh, meta matters. <laughs> All right, but now forget the meta. Let's get to Jimmy Khan. I want to hear a good Jimmy Khan story. He's one of my all-time favorites. What was it like working with that guy? I mean, he's a piece of work, that guy. Well, he was the the nonstop chatterbox on the set. He had a story. Not, he and Bob Newhart, which you can't – they're oh, sort of yeah. contemporaries, but they're yep. the opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Uh, you love you love them both. Uh, Newhart cursed more than Khan. That's the, the surprise. Really, that's surprising. Yeah, very surprising. Oh, my my favorite Jimmy Khan story is just a performance moment, and it goes back to this: why him singing at the end of the movie matters. Is that in the scene where Buddy breaks in and I don't care what you say, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, and he throws his hat and the he won't leave and. James Conn says, you know, get out of here. I don't care that you're my son. I don't care that you're an elf. I want you out of my life. So we're shooting that scene in Vancouver. And, you know, the scene is, the scene is fine, but it's such an important scene. And it drives the whole back end of the movie. And if it, if it doesn't work, if it, if it plays soft, our movie gets soft. It has to be a really human moment. So Jimmy did about five or six takes and we're all very similar. None of them terrible, but just not what we needed. And then Favreau got up and he walked over and he whispered something to Jimmy. And then he came back and sat down and then he delivered the take that's in the movie, which is, gives you shivers. It's fantastic. Yeah. And after cut, John and I leaned into Favreau and asked him like, what did you, what did you tell him? And he said, I told him that he's sunny effing Corleone. <laughs> he, yeah. reminded, he reminded him who he was. And so Sonny Corleone has a cameo right there. Love it. To throw Buddy the Elf out. I love it. That's fantastic. I love that. That's so great. The, the joy of being able to have a film that you worked on, that you helped create, kind of be get into the lexicon of something as important as the Christmas season that is that's that's got to be weird at, at at some point you know have you ever had like any of these kind of weird speaking of meta any of these weird meta moments with like family members or your own kids 
with 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 these films where you're suddenly you know it's a film you made and now someone's quoting it back like as your kids ever looked at you and said you sit on a throne of lies like is that ever like you ever had those kind of moments i don't lie to my kids james maybe maybe that has been <laughs> your home your home experience no um i don't know it's impossible to say because the movie was such a surprise when it came out the fact that it was a hit no nobody expected it to do anything so that it, right away it caught on this public consciousness and also i'm married to the wife i mean the the i'm married to the wife i'm married to my wife but i'm married to the mother of buddy the elf so we're already meta because jane is in the photograph with james khan as susan really? wells yes really oh wow susan wells. so she's the mother of, of buddy the elf which which makes me the stepfather of Buddy the Elf. <laughs> so we've been meta for a long time. My, my kids can't get enough of that. My, my, especially my 10 year old daughter is always telling people that her mother is uh, the mother of Buddy the Elf and, and therefore she's the sister of Buddy the Elf. So yeah. it's, been, it's been meta for a long time. But the, the thing that's a practical blessing is just when you meet people and they're happy to find out who you are and what you've done and that you brought some light into their life. That's a good feeling as opposed to the, uh, the, the typical shuck and jive of human experience. Yeah. You ruined my life. No. Um, <laughs> the, I get that um, some of my other movies. <laughs> yeah. yeah I get that some of your other movies. <laughs> uh, uh, so let's talk. I, I, I do want to spend some time talking to you about you know, my, my favorite film and i and sometimes people ask me all the time you know whenever you get that question what's your what's your favorite film and i and i do have quite a few films but the reason why i say it's a wonderful life is my favorite film is because it was i think seminal to me in a couple of different ways but my first exposure to it's a wonderful life was i was about 12 years old 11 or 12 and my mom had brought home from a coworker a like a VHS tape where they had recorded a bunch of movies. Remember back in the day when people would record a bunch of movies off their TV? Sure. And it was like one of those six hour tapes that had or 12 hour tapes that always had like a, a bunch of different movies on it. And I, and I remember, I think I was home from on Christmas break or something and she had this tape and I popped it in. And, and uh, I remember on that tape was Christmas in Connecticut with Barbara Stanwyck, great film. And, uh, and there was, it's a wonderful life. And I, First time I watched It's Wonderful Life was on that tape. I sat there, watched the entire film. I was by myself in the living room. I don't know if mm -hmm. nobody else was around. And I never, this has never happened to me before in my life, but when the film was over, I stopped the tape, I rewound it and watched mm -hmm. it again, right there. Hey, and, that's what, that's what uh, George Bailey does in It's a Wonderful Life. He got a rewind <laughs> of his life right, and he watched man. it again. So that's, that's perfect. Yeah. What's uh, so for you? What what um, when were you first introduced to this film, and what is it about this film that you've loved? And and then I'd love to hear about the process of writing the behind the story, behind the scenes story. I don't remember the first time exactly, but I do remember watching it at home when the pub it had fallen into the public domain, and NBC used to air it every Christmas about eighty five times. So I watched it probably in my late teens or early twenties with my family at home in Pennsylvania. Um, 
I probably watched it the first time when I was feeling very much like jumping off a bridge with uh, with George Bailey. So it, it had it had a massive impact on me because of that the the feeling of what is a life worth? And when you're depressed, you don't see any of the small moments. You don't see any of the graces that occurred before or the people you've helped. You know, when I look back at the hard times in my life, the reason that I kept moving was I found out people were impacted by the worst version of me. Like my, my lowest self-esteem, my darkest moments, there were still people that encountered me and enjoyed me or got some piece of wisdom and like, what? Like out of this dead thing, you some spark of life occurred. So part of depression, hardest part of depression, I think, and, and of course the, the chemical nature and all these things, but the, the noise in one's head that your life has been fruitless and therefore will continue to be fruitless. And we all, whether we're depressed or not, face the fact that Jesus called the devil the accuser. So whether you believe in the actual devil or not, we all know what it's like to hear the accusations in our head of our failure, of our meaninglessness. And that's why it's great when the Bible says, but wait, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer. We have a lawyer who's willing to stand up in court and say, this, this, these are all lies. This accuser can say whatever he wants, but there's no evidence. Here's the evidence. The evidence is this person touched this person, this person had this impact, and this is their beauty, and this is their truth. So It's a Wonderful Life does an extraordinary job of reminding us of that. As I grew into a storyteller, I say without question, It's a Wonderful Life, and ironically because the movie business was so young when this movie was made especially talkies were so young it's a wonderful life remains the best example of what mainstream movies can and should do it is the highest example of storytelling that is both commercial soul searching driving forward paying off every possible screenplay setup, catching you off guard, surprising you, twists and turns, emotional heft, laughter. I don't think a movie exists that's been made that does it better than that in all those ways. So it's a, per- it's a perfect movie, in my opinion. And lastly, I think it has an ongoing appeal for a reason people don't talk about. Everybody knows what it's like to have a dream deferred. You know. Scripture says a dream deferred makes the heart sick. We all know what it's like to want to quit. One of the things that's singular about It's a Wonderful Life is the hero is a jerk. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. George, George Bailey is remembered as a guy who did so much for people and all those things, but that's actually not who he was. In fact, he was a jerk. He did, he did save his brother and he did help Mr. Gower, you know, when, when he was a boy. But by the time we meet him as a grown-up and he's Jimmy Stewart, he wants to get out of town, shake the dust of this town off his feet. All he wants to do is leave. And he, he disparages everybody and everything about the town. Got to go, got to go, got to go. In fact, when they first stay and they give their honeymoon money, it's not George Bailey who offers it when the bank's in trouble. It's Donna Reed. It's Donna Reed, yep. Donna yep. Reed. Like, we have it. And then he, what can he do? And so he goes back in. And 
his, his focus is so much on self. That's where he begins to lose. Not, I'm not saying that he should have been happy with his circumstance in his life, but he kept saying, here's what I don't have. And the lesson of the movie is, oh my goodness, you have this woman, you have these kids, you have this town, you have, everybody loves you. You have so many things. But like anything, if you stare at a hole in your jeans long enough, you stop seeing the jeans. And all you see is the hole. And that's what happened to George Bailey. So I think that really resonates for people on a human level they don't want to talk about. Because we're all kind of jerks. Yep. Even <laughs> today, even more, probably even more so today. Yeah, we're more jerks, bigger jerks than ever. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I couldn't agree with you more. But it's like it really is. Good films are good therapy. That's the thing that's that's so interesting to me is I can watch It's a Wonderful Life in July. It doesn't matter. That'd be Christmas time, and it 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 gets me every time. And I, I, I it's fascinating to me that he, I I see the pitch coming, Todd. I see the pitch coming. And it still gets me. And I don't know how much of that is now nostalgia, right? Um, High art. It, listen, if you're going to stand in front of a Mark Rothko and, you know, you've seen it in photographs, you've seen it on postcards, but you go stand in front of a Rothko, which is a three uh, color line, you know, black, brown, maroon. And, you know, good luck not being moved because something happened there. Something happened. And if you pay attention, you will be moved. It's the same way with all things that are infused with God's spirit. This is a living thing. So of course it's going to make you cry. And Frederick Buechner always talks about how the things we need to pay attention. He said two things, pay attention to your life. All moments are key moments, which I love. But he also said to really pay attention to the things that make you laugh and cry, because those are the things that define you. They show what matters to you. And tears are involuntary. You can't gin up tears unless you're Meryl Streep. You can't gin up tears because I want to cry in front of the kids for It's a Wonderful Life. You cry because you cry. And I cry in all these Pixar movies and my kids just turn around to see, are you crying yet? Is dad crying yet? Because they know I'm going to cry. Yep, yep. I, that's not on purpose. That's just who we are. And when storytelling is, is done right, it, um, it's the key that fits into that lock that on the other side of that door is all our tears and our laughter and our humanity. I'm like Denzel Washington in glory when I watch It's One Flock. That deer just perfectly timed. The, the, how in the world is so... I think you're thinking of Demi Moore and Ghost. <laughs> That's, I fit that description a little better. How did you get connected to... So, so someone's trying to make a movie of the making of It's a Wonderful Life. Come on, man. What's going on? Tell, tell us about it. You, you've written the script. Tell us about it. I've written the script. They're trying to put it together. Yeah, um... This was another project that I was brought. A producer named Bob Cosberg had the rights to Marguerite, the daughter of Philip Van Doren Stern, who came up with a story that was called The Greatest Gift. And that story is the story of a haunting. You know, um, Emily Dickinson talked about how a poem haunts the writer until you get it out of your system. And what happened to Philip Van Doren Stern is one morning he woke up, he got out of bed, he went to splash water on his face. And in the moment that it took between the sink and looking up in the mirror, he received in a flash the story of It's a Wonderful Life. Wow. Start to finish, uh, the story of a man who wished he'd never been born. And he knew, he was a historian and he'd already published several books and he was in his 30s and he was a well-respected intellectual living in Brooklyn. And 
he knew it was important and he could not get it down. It's, it's like a, a major league pitcher who can't throw the ball over the plate. You throw it 110 miles an hour, but just cannot get it over the plate. So having this story in him and being unable to tell it ultimately put him on the same bridge that George Bailey was on and caused him to lose all hope. And he was destroyed by this story. I don't wow. want to give away, I don't want to give away sure. how we wound up getting it um, as, as a beautiful gem of a film. But at the same time that was happening to Philip, we also explore that Jimmy Stewart went to war. He, he volunteered. He was too skinny. They wouldn't take him. Yep. He was trying to eat steaks to get fat instead of fit. And he was a bomber pilot and he was, he flew countless sorties. And so he committed to that and he was seeing all the wreckage. When he came back from Hollywood, he went to the head of MGM where he was under contract and he said, I'm sorry, Mr. Mayor, I'm not going to resign because I've seen too much and I can no longer hit my mark and say my lines. So he retired from acting. Frank Capra, the director of the film, he had directed four movies in five years and won three Academy Awards for those movies. And when he came back from the war where he made incredible documentaries called Why We Fight, a series of films to get America clued yep. in as to yep. why we actually were at war. Yep. When he came back from that and the war was over, his phone wasn't ringing. He was old news. The number one filmmaker in the world was not getting any phone calls. So here you have the biggest movie star in the world retires, the biggest director in the world can't get a phone call, and the story of, that they're gonna write and change the world with in this movie, the storyteller can't get on paper. So this beautiful knitting together. Remember we talked about expect the unexpected? Well, God was in charge and he was knitting all these things together into what ultimately would become this perfect film. And this, uh, wow. the, um, the greatest gift is the story of how that all happened. And how long, how long did you spend researching before you started writing? Well, I got to meet Marguerite, the daughter who plays a huge part. It's a father-daughter love story okay. at its heart. And she was eight when all this happened. And she, in many ways, rescued her dad. Beautiful story. And I spent a lot of time with her and then um, did, did all the research I could and watched It's a Wonderful Life. I'd already seen it 200 times. But then when you watch it frame by frame, when you watch it looking for clues like a detective, it also changes. So this is proof about how we get moved. I'm just going to watch this one minute and a half section. No problem. Let me take some notes. Tears all over the legal pad. Like, come on. Okay, I'm going to watch it again. This time with one eye closed and, and hand over the other ear and tears from that. Come on. Like, That's a one eyed pirate would weep, weep their eye off. That's so, great. That's um that was a real honor to write and hopefully that movie gets made. It's like like everything we we say uh every movie in Hollywood takes seven years to get made, including the ones that never get made. Exactly, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. It's 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 out there right now and hopefully someone who hears it right now is gonna pony the money up for it. That's what I think. Someone's gonna hear this interview and it's gonna get me. That would um, be Christmas in July. That would, that be, would be, that'd be a great <laughs> We could credit you. That's right. There's we a great- Thank you to you, James, at the end of the movie. That's fine, that's fine. Just, just give me a greeting card, it'll be fine. Todd, this has been fantastic, man. Thank you so much for uh, just spending time with us. And man, I love your heart. 
I love your passion for great stories. I love your passion for people. And you've been such a, an encourager to me and to so many people and to Act One. And I just want to just thank you for who you are and, and uh, thank you for your time today, man. Well, have me back um, because I don't think you recorded this one either. <laughs> and uh, uh, Listen, it's an honor. I love what you're doing. Um, what I want to say is anybody that is doing what you're doing, which is fighting for story and truth, and love and grace and doing it to the glory of God. I just want to heap blessings upon you and thank you for being who you are. Uh, it is, it's an honor and a privilege to get to talk about Jesus who decided in his love for us, not just to do the things we know he did, which are die for us, forgive us, set us free, uh, plant us in heaven, all the endless gifts that he gave us, but he decided to do it as a storyteller. That's right. So everybody who's listening, your life is a story. Be a great storyteller and listen to the storyteller and you will be living in rhythm with the heart of God. That's awesome. I love it, man. Hey, I try to end all these with a prayer. Can I pray for you real quick? Oh yeah, of course, please. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, my friend Todd. I pray a blessing upon him. I pray a blessing upon his family his relationship with his kids, his relationship with his wife, his relationship with his uh, co-workers. God, I pray that you would fill him with your spirit of truth and goodness and beauty and, and all that he does. And we pray this in Jesus' name and your promise to be stand. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One Podcast. To learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com.